Well, good evening and uh, welcome back everyone to uh, Centerpoint and uh, the School uh, of Theology. You can always, um, you can always tell when a, a tune, a melody is Welsh, can't you? Uh, that, uh, that tune is, um, takes me back to primary school. Uh, it's set, of course, to uh, something quite secular in, uh, in Welsh, and um, one, of those, one of those things you learn when you're five, six years old, uh, set to that uh, beautiful tune. Uh, of course, it was a hymn about creation, uh, which is where we are. We began last week, uh, and uh, we're going to continue looking at it again uh, this evening. Uh, the doctrine of creation, and uh, last week we spent all of our time uh, discussing uh, various views of creation and the pros and, and cons, and uh, uh, I, th- I thought I might uh, summarize that this evening uh, in this little table. Uh, it's, it's a work in progress. If uh, Dr. Ferguson had left me alone this afternoon, I might have done some more with it. Um, uh, but it's the beginning of a, of a summary of uh, what we were thinking about uh, last week. Uh, these are various views. Uh, at this moment, I'm not commenting on their acceptability, uh, except the further to the left that you get, the more acceptable they are. Let me put it that way. Uh, I, I personally uh, would rule out uh, theistic evolution, uh, historic Adam, uh, and, and certainly uh, there is no place in uh, the in Christianity, I think, for theistic evolution with no historic Adam. I think that is absolutely uh, out of the question. Uh, some of the issues we were looking at last week were. Um, the supposed age of the universe, um, 13.77 billion years according to Google, uh, and um, the so-called Big Bang uh, theory, and uh, um, our own solar system, 4.5 billion years, thereabouts, I think that it is, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just very difficult uh, to accept the infallibility, inerrancy of Scripture uh, and certainly date uh, the existence of man, uh, mankind, man meaning man as body and soul, uh, the, crea- the, the existence of man uh, further than... 15, 20,000 years ago. That, that's very difficult to do uh, without introducing enormous problems into the, genealog- uh, the genealogies of the Old Testament. There are certainly gaps uh, in Genesis that you can add some years and you can be generous, but, but at best I think you're, you're heading in the direction of 20,000 years. Uh, I, I personally have uh, problems and difficulties um, extrapolating from the Genesis record and the way in which passages like Romans 5 depend on the Genesis uh, record uh, for anything less than uh, an historical Adam. Uh, I think that's a line in the sand. I, I, I cannot go beyond uh, that line. There, there has to be an, an historical Adam, uh, an Adam that is both body and soul. Uh, and that Adam is a creation of God. I, I, my own understanding of Genesis is that, that, that Adam is a direct creation of God from the dust of the earth. And um, I, I, I have difficulties um, squaring that with uh, pre-existent hominids uh, of some kind, uh, agrarian Farmers, uh, they would have to be without souls, uh, non-moral, non-responsible creatures of some description, uh, and God suddenly picks one male and one female, presumably, uh, as Adam and, and Eve. 
Uh, I find any, any attempt to uh, mythologize Genesis 1 to 3, or for that matter Genesis 1 to 11, uh, wholly unacceptable. Um, th- there are some uh, important uh, and ongoing discussions uh, among conservative Bible-believing uh, Christians and scholars uh, as to h- how you explain the supposed age of the universe or the, uh, the uh, geological uh, fossil record, uh, for sure. Um, one such attempt, of course, is uh, the young earth creationists um, that explain it in terms of catastrophism, um, the Noahic flood, uh, worldwide flood, uh, is, would therefore be the explanation for much of that. There's still uh, a problem about the size of the universe and uh, the, 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 just the sheer length of time it would take for light from, say, the Andromeda galaxy to, uh, to come uh, to us here in 2013, uh, which is in the realm of billions of, of years. Uh, and that, too, has been explained by young Earth creationists in terms of the slowing down of the speed of light um, that, that the factor involved in, the, in that slowing down is immense, uh, you understand. But there are certainly f- folk out there who, who advocate that. My own uh, colleague and, and dear friend whom I was talking to yesterday, Doug Kelly, uh, in, uh, in uh, Charlotte in, uh, in North Carolina, is uh, an advocate of that uh, and has, uh, has argued that vociferously and... Uh, I dare you to take him on. Uh, we, we haven't all uh, bought into that for sure, but, uh, but that, that view is uh, certainly uh, out there. Um, we, talked, we talked about um, certain views, I think, that are compatible with Genesis, uh, whether, you, whether you, you accept them or not, but they are compatible with Genesis, I think, and uh, views that advocate a gap, for example, between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, or for that matter, between Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 2 and 3. And uh, it is interesting that in the ESV, uh, even in the way it's paragraphed, it, it, it is kind of suggestive of certain breaks uh, in the process uh, that would still involve perhaps 24-hour creation activities, creation days, but gaps in between, and that could explain some of the, uh, of the issues, perhaps. Um, we talked uh, last week about uh, how to read Genesis 1 and whether it's meant to be read chronologically and sequentially, uh, or whether it is uh, more of a certain kind of literary genre of its own and uh, framework hypothesis and day one and day four and day two and day five and day three and day six go together. If you weren't here last week, you can look at the notes and so on. But the so-called uh, framework um, uh, hypothesis. And so uh, I think uh, I came down... Um, you know, it's one of these things you, you think about. My, my concern largely is not a scientific one. I'm not a scientist. Um, my concern is that which is compatible uh, with Scripture, uh, with the inerrancy of Scripture. And um, uh, for me, I, I, I can live with uh, a, a world, a universe that has been created to look old. Uh, but still relatively young in terms of how long it's actually been here, but I, I think that that has something, uh, some, some, some energy to it. Um, but there are certain lines in the sand, especially, uh, that I think uh, w- once we cross those lines, we, we are no longer, it is no longer compatible uh, with, uh, with the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Now, I know there's some of you... Uh, uh, are uh, devotees and advocates, uh, strong advocates, m- militant advocates maybe, of a young earth creationist uh, point of view and uh, the, uh, the, the wonderful lectures, and I've heard them uh, by Ken Ham and, and so on. Uh, and I'm certainly looking forward to the, uh, to the museum uh, in Cincinnati uh, which I've never been to, but uh, one of these days when I'm, when I'm stuck in Cincinnati Airport for a day, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and see this museum. Uh, and uh, apparently they're building 
a life-size model of Noah's Ark. Now, that would definitely be worth seeing. Uh, and apparently it's just a couple of years away, I think, uh, from, from being completed. And that would be certainly worth seeing. Um, I have enjoyed enormously uh, this particular book, which was published uh, just a few months ago, within the last year. I better correct myself. I bought it within the last year. 2006. Time flies. <laughs> Ta- time is speeding up, not slowing down. Uh, 2006. I bought this when it was new. Um, uh, Vern, Vern Poitras, uh, a colleague of Dr. Ferguson's uh, for many years at Westminster Seminary. This man knows more than you and I put together and multiplied by a factor of 100. This is one of the smartest men that, I, that I've ever met. Um, mathematician, scientist, theologian, and one of the humblest people I've actually ever met. And uh, I, I recall one particular meal, an evening meal I had with him in a restaurant um, that was the most Jesus-like encounter with another individual I think I've ever had in my entire life. Um, but this, uh, this book, Redeeming Science... Uh, a God-centered approach. Uh, if this issue troubles you, and some of you are maybe wanting some information, how, how, how can I help my children? How can I help my college children, college students who are studying science? Uh, this is coming f- largely from a theologian's point of view, um, but a theologian who is smart about science, for sure. Uh, and uh, I, I would thoroughly recommend... I know it's a big book... You know, I know it's, uh, it's over 300 pages, it's a bit of a doorstop, but, but it's, uh, it's written, it's actually written in a, in a wonderful way. I, w- I would certainly would recommend it for your college students who may be struggling uh, with some of these things and uh, who need, who need a, a biblical perspective uh, to be brought back into the picture. But let's, let's continue uh, talking this evening about creation, but talking about it from a theological point of view uh, instead of some of the, the problems that we were dealing with last uh, Wednesday evening. Now, uh, we were having some difficulties today with uh, Hebrew fonts, and those of you who know your Hebrew, keep it to yourself this evening. I, I know there are some glitches in here, I'm well aware of it, uh, but we could not for the life of us sort it out, because Justin went away today uh, because of a, an illness in his family. Um, the first thing I want to say about this is, is uh, the meaning of creation, uh, that, that creation as it is spoken of uh, in Genesis 1 is a, a, divine, a distinctly divine activity. And the way Genesis 1 does this, and Genesis 1 is one of those exquisite chapters, it, from a literary point of view, it, it, is, it is like John chapter 1, the prologue of John's gospel. You know, we, we sort of inherit from an evolutionary model that, that man in the past was kind of primitive and man in the future has evolved to be something a bit smarter. And then you see Moses writing Genesis 1 uh, to, of course, several, several hundred years down the line, of course, when they're in Egypt. That's the time when Genesis 1 is being written and, and the... the uh, the setting in which Genesis 1 and 2 is written is Egypt, uh, and, and we'll come to that in a minute. Um, but um, there's something extraordinarily smart. Uh, Dr. Ferguson was waxing eloquent in the elevator. He does this sort of thing. Uh, he was citing John Donne, uh, and, uh, and then he was uh, citing uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, actually with a fairly good imitation of T.S. Eliot's voice. And... Uh, um, extraordinary, the, the, the literary nature of Genesis 1. It uses this word, uh, Hebrew word, bara, to create. Now, there are several words for, to, for creation in the Hebrew, but this particular word is a word that's only and distinctively used with God as its subject. And I've given you a fairly extensive definition of the word to shape or create. Um, no one else creates in this fashion. Now, we create. Some of you create uh, art. Uh, some of you create websites. Uh, some of you create um, uh, food and, and, and wonderful, aesthetically pleasing food. Uh, others of you, not so much. 
and, uh, uh, but, but only, only, God, only God is the subject of, of this particular verb to, to create in, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, and it always has the idea of something special or something new. Now it's not, not necessarily, the word doesn't necessarily carry the meaning uh, that God creates out of nothing. Now God certainly does create out of nothing, though this particular word doesn't necessarily carry all of that within itself. It's the same word that's used of the creation of Adam, uh, and Adam isn't actually created out of nothing. Adam is created out of the dust of the ground. Um, but, but Adam is so special that only God could create him. And that, that's why this word is being used. There are two creation stories. The first one uh, actually overlaps into chapter 2. So from Genesis 1.1 1, 1, uh, down to Genesis 2.3 or perhaps even to Genesis 2.4. Uh, and, and this word, this verb, bara, is, is at the beginning and end. They're like bookends. Uh, they're like a little inclusio. And I love what Alec Matia says about that. Looking forward to what is about to happen and then back over the finished work. Uh, God l- looking forward, anticipating what he's going to do, and then looking back at what he has done. The emphasis being entirely upon, uh, upon God. The production then of something new, either new in matter or new in form. So you have this verb used of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1, of the great sea creatures in Genesis 1.21, and then of man three times in Genesis 1.27. I wonder, uh, I was reading... Uh, Alec Matier briefly this morning, and, and he, was, uh, he was also wondering, uh, this, uh, this wonderful man, Alec Matier, uh, Old Testament uh, scholar and professor, uh, now retired, uh, living somewhere in England. Uh, and uh, you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, you have the threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy. And in Genesis 1.27, you have the threefold repetition of, of create, create, create. It's a very Hebraic thing uh, to repeat something three times and give it this enormous emphasis. Just as the heavens and the earth were created by God, and then the great sea creatures were created by God, but especially, especially man was created by God. A sparing use of the verb, uh, implying, I think, uh, uh, adding a kind of dignity uh, and a kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, the infrequency of it, uh, uh, giving it a kind of dignity. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a work of the sovereign, uh, omnipotent uh, God. Now, it's never followed, this verb is never followed uh, by the accusative. We, we use the preposition with, we create with something, certain material which impose uh, limitations on what is made. God has complete um, control then and, and mastery over that which he makes. Now, the method of creation. Uh, in Genesis 1, this, uh, this wonderful expression, let there be. Uh, Let there be. God spoke the universe into being. Uh, Just as uh, the prologue of uh, John's gospel, in the beginning uh, was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word uh, was God. Uh, John, of course, is echoing Genesis chapter 1. I think it's quite deliberate in John's uh, part. Uh, he's, uh, He's talking about Christ being in existence and having existence, already in existence, before the creation of the universe. Jesus, the Logos, the Word, already was. Uh, but the, not only is there a parallel uh, between Genesis 1 and John 1 in the way that it begins, in the beginning, uh, but there's also this parallel of speaking. God spoke. How did, how did the universe come into being? God spoke it into being. He, he breathed out. You know, how did the Bible come into being? God breathed it out. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, God breathed out the scriptures. 
think of a cold morning. Uh, the last uh, couple of uh, weeks, Friday morning was pretty cold. Uh, Kevin DeYoung came into town, everything chilled down uh, from, from uh, Grand Rapids, from, uh, from uh, Michigan, Lansing in Michigan. And then as he left, the sun came out and it warmed up again. We had a, we had a great uh, joke about that in the car as I was, as I was uh, taking him somewhere on, on Saturday. And um, uh, think of a cold morning. You breathe out. You can see the air. You can see, you can see your breath before you in little tiny water droplets. That, that's the picture here. God, God spoke the universe into being. Uh, it, it's a parallel Uh, with the nature miracles. There are different kinds of miracles, but the the nature miracles of Jesus uh, on the Sea of Galilee in in the middle of a storm, and uh, the the wind is blowing, and the the sea uh, is foaming, and the boat is rocking, and and Jesus uh, Jesus says uh, he rebuked, uh, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. He spoke. But he, with a word, he spoke, and the sea was calm. Uh, or think of the raising of uh, Lazarus, uh, Jesus' friend. Um, the holiday inn that he stayed in whenever he was down near Jerusalem with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And uh, when Lazarus dies, uh, he asks, where have you laid him? And then, and then he says, Lazarus, come forth. You know, and... Uh, uh, one, of, one of the great Puritan commentators said he had to say Lazarus come forth otherwise all of the dead would have come forth. He, he had to be very specific. Lazarus come forth. Um, but it was with a spoken word creating life, stilling the storm, having power over creation, over matter, over life uh, and death. Uh, the universe brought into being by the word of God. God breathes out creation. And uh, the scriptures echo that. Uh, Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. By the word of God. Second uh, Peter 3.5, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water th- and through water by the word of God. And Psalm 33.6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. That's easy to say, isn't it? In the vastness of this universe, billions and billions and billions of stars, some of which we've never seen and couldn't see. They're so far away. And as you uh, walk at night, you know, and you look up at the sky and you just see all of those twinkling stars uh, that have t- that taken um, years, hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years, in some cases 10,000 years or more for that light to, to, to come to us. And uh, God made it all. He made it all. And the wonderful way in which in Genesis chapter 1, I don't know whether you've noticed it, as you read Genesis 1, and, and, uh, and he made the stars. It's just a little throwaway, little, little, little phrase at the end of a sentence. Almost. And he, oh, by the way, he made the stars. You know, all that, all that out there. He, he just made it. He, he brought it into being. He breathed it out. Uh, the levels of creation. Um, there, there are... There are two quite distinct ways in which God creates. Even within the Genesis record, even within the two uh, creation narratives, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, And these are demonstrated largely by the the use of two different verbs. Uh, Bara is one and Yatsar is the other. Uh, And Yatsar is the the verb that you commonly use in Hebrew for creating something out of already pre-existing stuff. Like a like a sculptor would already take some clay and mold it and shape it into something. But it's not creation out of nothing, it's creation out of something that already exists. And you see something of that in the creation accounts. You see immediate creation and mediate um, creation. 
uh, immediate creation, sometimes called ex nihilo, out of nothing. God makes uh, without pre-existing materials. So he creates light and uh, gravity and uh, electromagnetism and space and time. Uh, The stars, the earth. Now, of course, uh, if you hold to a Big Bang theory, that's, that, that's somewhat difficult to hold to. Uh, and in fact, the older the, older the Earth is uh, in terms of, of, of actual existence, uh, the less likely you're going to Im- impute ex nihilo to these things. These things form uh, of themselves, or they form perhaps under the providence of God, but they don't, they don't form ex, ex nihilo, out of, out, of, out of nothing. And that's why some conservative uh, scholars, Old Testament scholars especially, uh, question whether Genesis 1 actually teaches ex nihilo. And, and I think if, if you go in that direction, you, you go beyond, I think, what, you know, I think you do have to ask yourself, what would, the, what would the ordinary individual in Egypt to whom Moses is writing this, what would he pick up from, from this narrative? And uh, that, uh, that involves a complexity of thought that is uh, way beyond what is transparent uh, in, in the account itself for me. Uh, so I, I, I readily accept uh, and, and actually would insist upon the fact that Genesis 1 teaches creation out of nothing, uh, out of no pre-existing uh, material. But then in Genesis 2, you have mediate creation uh, in the sense that uh, uh, although bara is, uh, is, uh, is used here in Genesis 2.19, man is created out of the ground uh, or out of the dust of the ground, uh, out of uh, out of the earth, and and I think, I think that uh, that's humbling, isn't it? Uh, that uh, actually actually God uses uh, mud. Uh, God 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 uses uh, uh, just 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 stuff to to make man, but breathes into him life creates in him soul so that he is a living soul. Uh, For some, uh, immediate creation could have involved long processes and various views of creation, day-age views, framework hypothesis, gap theories, analogical days, uh, are certainly views in which that long process of time can can, um, can stretch how this immediate creation actually takes place. Uh, in, in principle, uh, in, I would say in principle there is nothing there that causes alarm uh, for theologians, even though that's not where I particularly am. Now, characteristics of creation. Uh, this uh, this uh, repeated phrase, uh, it was good. God creates light and it was good. Uh, he creates, he divides the land and the sea and assigns them their respective uh, spheres uh, and it was good. Uh, the earth is fruitful. <clears throat> brings forth, um, brings forth just, just oodles of uh, vegetation. And plants and trees and and flowers and 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 teeming uh, with uh, fruitfulness and it was good. And then the establishment of the great heavenly uh, luminaries and it was good. Uh, and the advent of animate life and it was good. And then the proliferation of animals and it was good. And then man, man as male and female in the first creation account. And it was very good. Now that says a number of things all at once. Um, I think that addresses, for example, the issue of aesthetics. You know, what is beauty? You know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, not so much. 
It is true. That's true. But, but actually there is an objective quality to beauty. It's not purely subjective. There is an objective. I'm sorry, rap is not beautiful. There's an, there's an objectivity to beauty. Who is this? Who is... Who is the one great critic of what is beautiful? And Genesis 1 is saying, God is. God looks at certain things. He sees certain things. He evaluates certain things. And he says, good, 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 very good. Not everything is as, you know, there's, there are levels of beauty. Um, that's, a, that's a very fruitful place to begin a discussion on uh, beauty and art and literature and music and poetry uh, and architecture and, and a hundred other things. That it's, not, it's not purely a subjective thing. There is an objectivity to beauty. Uh, if you want to trace that a little further... Um, I'd, I'd recommend uh, some of these uh, books here, especially Jeremy Begbie, uh, who, uh, whose writings I, I enjoy tremendously. Um, uh, from a musician's point of view, Resounding Truth, Christian Wisdom in the World of Music, uh, Duke uh, University. And then uh, Philip Ryken, Art for God's Sake, A Call uh, to Rediscover the Arts, uh, President of Wheaton uh, College. And, uh, and then... Uh, uh, Abraham Kuyper, Abraham Kuyper's uh, lectures on Calvinism. Now, I, I have a love-hate relationship with Abraham Kuyper's uh, lectures on Calvinism. Uh, they were given, I think, in 1897 uh, at Princeton, uh, over a century ago. Uh, and um, there's one lecture in which he gives uh, Calvinism and the arts, and uh, he just goes, he just loses the plot about Debussy. Uh, and uh, thinks, uh, thinks that Debussy's music is everything that's bad and certainly not very good and not even good but bad and I just think uh, I just think Kuiper just didn't get up on the right side of the bed the morning he wrote that lecture I, I, I don't follow him in that but, but it's, a, it's a very classic treatment of, uh, of Calvin, Calvinistic reformed approach to the arts but uh, Genesis is telling us there is, there is something objective God-centered, God-defined about beauty, about what is good and what is very good. Uh, we have these discussions all the time. Uh, you know, most things I read about uh, Christianity and music just, just drive me completely nuts. Um, but there is an objectivity here uh, in the discussions that we sometimes have about worship, for example. Is there an aesthetic to worship? Is there such a thing as beauty in worship? And, and what is it? And, and most of the time we can argue that from a principle of prejudice or, or what, what I particularly think of as beauty, but there is an objective standard to beauty. Now, we could talk about that for until the cows come home, uh, but we need to move on. You notice how Genesis 1 is at complete loggerheads here with modern anthropology. You know, where man is just an animal. And uh, man is set in a very, very distinctive place in Genesis. Now, the animals are good, you understand. So it's okay to love your dog, right? Animals, there's goodness within creation. The creation itself isn't evil. You know, it's Platonism had a view um, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the tables and chairs uh, that you see are only, are only very limited descriptions of the ideal uh, table. Uh, and, and because they are, they are corruptions of the ideal. Uh, and that led to certain views, uh, particularly in the New Testament era of matter itself and the world, the phenomenal world that you can see being itself evil. And Genesis 1 is saying, matter isn't evil. The universe itself isn't evil. Now, it's, it's fallen. It's subject to decay. There's a, there's a principle of entropy in the universe now because of the fall. But, 
but matter itself isn't evil. There, there, there is such a thing as goodness. Let me get back to my point. Um, the distinctive place of man uh, in, in creation. Uh, and originally here, man uh, as male and female uh, in, in, in perfection. Uh, without sin or, or, or defect. Or defect. Uh, and then differentiation uh, within creation. Uh, the earth was without form and um, void. Uh, the earth was without form and void. And then, and then God separates. He separates. He, he causes distinctions. They are God-made distinctions. That's why uh, I think uh, we need to be very careful uh, in genetics. Just because it's possible to do doesn't mean to say that it's right to do. Uh, and that, that's true in sexual ethics and it's true in genetics. Just because you can do it doesn't mean to say that it's right to do it. Uh, there are some things that God has separated. And uh, we're on the cusp, I think, of uh, genetic uh, manipulation uh, that, that may actually transgress, it seems to me, things that God has separated and divided. I think it's unethical to put together what God has separated just as it is unethical to tear asunder what God has put together. Um, nothing buttery. Uh, this is a, a statement often attributed to Professor Donald Mackay, but, but actually it was used before him by Taylor de Chardin in uh, The Phenomenon of Man. You know, the argument that says that just because man, man is, is chemical... Um, that he's nothing but chemistry. You know, we're just a bunch of atoms. We're just a bunch of chemicals. That's all that we are. We're just, we're just, we're just uh, some, some nitrogen and some carbon and, and whatever. That's all that we are. No, we're nothing but that. The nothing buttery argument. Now, we are chemical, but we are more than that. We are created in the image of God. Now, we'll talk about that when we come to talk about the doctrine of man. And uh, we'll have to come back to Genesis 1, and especially uh, verses 26 and 27, about man being created in the image of God. Um, so there's differentiation. There's also order. There's a, there's a clear order in creation. And you get the sense of that as you, as you read the creation account. God creates, he separates, he divides. There's structure, there's order. It's massively intricate. Um, actually, God is a homemaker. That's the impression I get when I read Genesis 1. God is making a home for his creatures. A home to live in and play in and rest in. Uh, there's progression, beginning with, with, with a world that's without form and void, and moving on to structure and differentiation and artistry. Uh, there is the, um, you know, it begins with darkness and light, the precondition for life. Then, then disorder to, to land and sea. The, and, and creating the possibility for land-born and sea-born creatures. And then from emptiness to life. From no vegetation to, to massive amounts of vegetation. And marine life. And the seas and the land um, teeming with life. Now how many species are there? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, one that was addressed in the New York Times uh, fairly recently. And um, how many species? A study says 8.7 million, but it's tricky. Uh, and depending on how you define species, and I'm not a scientist, and, uh, but, but this New York Times article was fascinating. Um, at the extreme end, uh, 5.1 million different kinds of species um, of uh, just fun fungi or fungi, however you pronounce it. Fungus, but in the, but in the plural. 
Um, there, are, there are, according to some estimates, as, as, as many as 5.1 million different species of them. An incredible amount. That, that when God creates, it's not, a, it's not a small thing, it's not a tiny thing. It's a massively complicated, intricate thing, fascinating thing for us to explore. W- wonderful. From simple to complex life, from vegetation to animal to man. Now do note in the creation account that man emerges on the same day as the animals. You know, so don't be surprised. I mean, it shouldn't rock your world that the DNA of man is only fractionally different from the DNA of a chimpanzee or an ape or whatever. I mean, why, why should that bother you? It was, man was created on the same day. God changed the blueprint just a little to create man and then breathed into him life and made him a living soul, morally and ethically accountable to him. Um, no, no problem for the Christian, no problem for the theologian there that there is a kind of similarity. They were created on the same day. And then, and then genre, uh, something about the genre, especially of Genesis 1. Uh, what was Moses saying in the creation accounts? Uh, E.J. Young says about, uh, about the first creation account um, that it lacks the style of Hebrew poetry. It doesn't read like poetry. It doesn't use uh, some of the distinctive features of Hebrew poetry, parallelism and so on. So it, it reads more like prose, but it's, but it's also unusual prose with, with ref, repeated r- refrains. He calls it an exalted, semi-poetical style. Now, E.J. Young is a wonderful, uh, conservative uh, Hebrew Old Testament scholar who taught at Westminster Seminary back in the 50s, 60s, 50s, 30s, 40s, 40s, 50s. let me, let me go on to the next page here for time considerations because I want to make uh, some points here about the actual context in which the creation accounts were written. Genesis was written when Moses, of course, is in Egypt. Uh, it's being written to a, a people who, who are essentially Egyptian. Uh, Moses is, is Egyptian. His culture is Egyptian. He's been immersed in Egyptian culture. He's writing to people who are immersed in an Egyptian culture. And uh, uh, he's he's, he's countering worldviews, Egyptian, ancient Near Eastern cosmologies and, and creation myths in which were things like polytheism and henotheism uh, polytheism, more than one God, henotheism, meaning, meaning that you, you have gods of different nations. He is, this is the God of Israel, and this is the God of Egypt, and this is the God of Mesopotamia, or whatever. Um, so he's, he's countering that, and he's saying, in the beginning, God. Right? In, in the very beginning. At the very beginning, there's only one God. Right? So he's, he's, he's countering the worldview, the polytheistic worldview in, in which the people of God in, in Egypt, as they, as they emerge into their, into their wilderness wandering period, Moses is addressing the whole culture of polytheism. And he's saying, he's saying in the beginning, God. Now the, the gods, the polytheistic gods of the ancient Near East were unpredictable. They were irascible, they lost their temper, they did all kinds of bad things. Now in Egypt, um, there were all kinds of uh, deities um, in various centers, Hierapolis, Memphis, Hermopolis. Uh, these are three major centers in uh, ancient Egypt. Uh, and I've, I've just listed some of the Egyptian gods, and uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't like to write down here all the ways in which some of these gods come together, because they come, they come into being through sexual uh, promiscuity of one god with another god, S, or whatever, uh, and, and it's, it's, all, it's all very, very crass. 
Um, but that, that's the culture. That's the culture in which, uh, in which these, uh, um, uh, these, these original um, readers of Genesis would have found themselves in. Uh, in Egypt, there was a god of the sun. Uh, there was the, the god of the moon. And uh, Moses says, Yahweh, Jehovah, created the sun and created the moon. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a totally contrary worldview here. This, this sun that you're worshipping, this moon that you're worshipping, Yahweh breathed it into being. There is only one God. So, so that's, that's one of, the, that's one of the, the, the great driving forces behind Genesis 1. To declare and proclaim the majesty of God. Who God is. There is only one God and that God exists. What's the greatest lesson you and I need to hear? What's the greatest lesson the natural man needs to hear? There is only one God and you are not that God. That's lesson number one. There is only one God, and you are not that God. You know, man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols, Calvin said. It's an idol factory. It's creating gods all the time. It's, it's an inbuilt, self-destructive, God-destructive force um, within us. You know, Richard Dawkins was asked... Um, if his view of reality made him depressed. And he replied, I don't feel depressed about it, but if somebody does, that's their problem. Maybe the logic is deeply pessimistic. The universe is bleak, cold, and empty, but so what? Uh, Dawkins, of course, is, is the atheist of our time. He is the leading global expert on atheism. And... Um, his, his cosmology is bleak and dark and uh, empty. And uh, Gen- you open Genesis 1 and it says, um, there is a God. And he communicates. And he engages in fellowship with man whom he has created. And in Christ restores us into that fellowship so that we may call the God of the universe, the God who breathed the universe into being, and we may come before him and say, Abba, Father. And we are his children. And we learn in Christ that he has loved us with an everlasting love led by grace, that love to know. Uh, these are some of the things uh, that uh, the record of Genesis uh, and the creation accounts uh, teach us. They teach us principally, I think, you know, before we get lost uh, in the apologetics uh, of uh, n- n- natural science and, uh, and, and all of the difficulties uh, with respect to uh, Genesis versus uh, versus. Uh, Geology or Genesis versus astrophysics or Genesis versus the age of the earth or whatever. Um, you know, remember those first few words of Genesis 1 in the beginning, God. And the focus, actually, the focus of Genesis 1's creation account is actually God Himself. Uh, God uh, who has always existed. Uh, and I think Genesis is saying, you know, what, what Augustine uh, says in his confessions, that, uh, that uh, you, you made us, he says, you, you made us for yourself, and we are restless until we find our rest in you. So, so the, the, the problem of man, is the, the, the restlessness of man, Dr. Ferguson's sermon 10 days ago on Hebrews 4, the restlessness of man is actually because he is not resting in God as creator, resting in Christ as redeemer, resting in the assurance of the Holy Spirit that we are in union and communion with Christ. 
Well, those are some of the thoughts about God, the Creator. Uh, next week we'll move on to providence, um, the doctrine of providence. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. You are indeed our Creator. You brought the world, this this planetary system, this galaxy in which we find ourselves, this universe, in all of its its gigantic uh, size and intricate nature and you brought it all into being and you keep it in being and all of the forces uh, that we encounter were brought into being you spoke and it came to pass we thank you that there is beauty in creation uh, and that in Christ we can discover that beauty again Christless eyes of have never seen something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen but we thank you that we have come to glimpse it we see a we see a sunset or a sunrise we see we see a deer uh, in at, at sunset in the distance we we listen to a bird singing in a tree uh, we have relationships with created creatures And we see in them something of beauty, beauty which you made, which you created. And something of the enjoyment that we have with with the world in which we live. We we have come to discover that we can enjoy this world and use it for good because you have pronounced it to be good. And redeemed in Christ and looking forward now to... Uh, the restoration of all things, the creation of the new heavens and new earth, where sin and all of its effects will be totally banished, and the enjoyment of that in a created world of time and space. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the fact that you are our creator, and we are your creatures. You formed us, and we are, we are subject to you. We find our wholeness, our sense of being, our sense of self-worth in, in bringing to you the praise for that which you made. So bless us now this evening, we pray. Uh, bless these uh, ideas, these thoughts, these truths uh, in our minds and hearts and affections. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.